Well, this morning we pick up where we kind of left off a couple weeks ago, covered all of um, verses 1 to 14 in chapter 9, but wanted to come back and revisit verses 11 to 14. Um, The focus last time was on verses 1 to 10, uh, the the earthly holy place and its comparison with the real heavenly place. But none of that really made sense to me if we don't include verses 11 to 14 as context. But we only touched on it briefly, so uh, Lord willing we'll get into it in a little bit more depth here this morning, verses 11 to 14. Excuse me, of Hebrews chapter 9. Once again, let me read that for us. As always, this is the very word of our living God. Hebrews 9.11 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Once again, so ends the reading from God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he bless us as we come before it here this morning. Let me pray for us as we do. Father, again, we come before you and ask your blessing, this time now, specifically, as we come before your word. Again, we ask that you would speak to us, that as your word goes out, you would fulfill your very own promise, that when it goes out, it does not return to you void or empty, but rather that it accomplishes everything that you have purposed it to accomplish and is successful in the very things for which you have sent it out. For ourselves, we ask again that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. (coughs) Pour it out upon us this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear everything that you would have us see and hear from your word this morning. In so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Our Father, as always, we ask this. In the matchless, superior name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, <clears throat> four years ago I had the, um, the privilege to be a chaperone on um, Rachel's eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C., to the East Coast. Um, pretty, pretty much of a thrill seeing things I'd never seen before, seeing history, which I always love. But we went out a couple days early because at the time three of my high school friends were living and working in Washington, D.C. And um, so we got to visit with them, go out to dinner. And uh, one of the interesting things that that we learned sitting around and talking was this is our nation's capital, right? The president is there. The Supreme Court is there. Congress is there. Senators, representatives, all these important people uh, with incredible status and who you're attached to and who you or affiliated with, affects your status in the community, blah, 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 blah. One of the things that, that emerged in, in our discussion as they were sharing their experiences working in, in D.C. is that um, there's another measure of status in the nation's capital. It's, 
It's where you can get into. Buildings are secured. Some of them for safety reasons. They just want people to be safe and free from any outside attacks. Some because there's military secrets that they want to protect. Others because there's research going on or political discussions or what have you. Uh, legal things that, that don't need other people's interference. And so there are badges that get you into to different buildings with different levels of access and, and privilege. And what they were sharing with us was, you know how, how much status someone has in Washington, D.C. by how many badges they have and where they can get in. And they were all kind of making fun of the one friend because he had a lot of badges and he could get in just about anywhere. <laughs> he could go places where congressmen can't go, where senators can't go, where uh, other uh, high officials can't go. Badges that get you entrance into special places. And that's you know what security badges do. We have them at the place where I work. Many of you have them as well. Uh, you see it in, in the... The New Testament reading, Jesus' parable, the badge that they had was the wedding garment. If you're not wearing the wedding garment, you're kicked out. Now, they snuck in somehow, but the king was checking things out. Oh, you don't have the right garment? How'd you get in? Got no answer. Well, you're out of here. Tickets to a concert or or to an event of some kind, especially think of the VIP tickets that get you special access to the locker room or to backstage or whatever it might be. And and you see these people and you go, wow, that's cool. There's a little bit of status that we give to these people who have special tickets or special access. Well, last time we had this reminder in verses 1 to 10 that there's a special place in the midst of the people of Israel, the tabernacle, which later became the temple on Mount Zion. Only priests get to go inside the temple. They have access. They have a ticket to get in, so to speak. That's status. Priests had status in Old Testament society. And the one with the most status was the high priest. He's the only one who gets to go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, once a year to offer the blood of animals, to atone for the sins of the people. In fact, it says in verse 7 that he cannot go in without taking blood with him. That's his ticket to get in, so to speak. That's his badge. He comes in with blood. If he doesn't come in with blood, it doesn't matter if he's the high priest. He's out of there. And that's why they tied a rope around him. Maybe to drag him out if he got killed. But we also saw that there's a weakness. There's a weakness in that tabernacle, temple structure. It's just a shadow. It's just a model. It's just a model of a greater reality. The place where God really lives. The heavenly places. Blood of animals cannot perfect human conscience. That's another weakness. They deal with external things only. The fact that they're repeated time and time and time again, year after year after year, is another evidence that they're weak. They're not effective. They can't do what needs to be done for human beings. The fact that priests die and have to be succeeded one generation after another is another evidence that these just, they cannot do what needs to be done. This old ritual, it's not sufficient. In fact, we saw that the author calls them weak and useless. 
the continuing presence of this ongoing ritual, the structure of the temple itself with the curtain that divides the holy place from the most holy place is evidence that the age to come has not arrived, according to the author. Chapter 9, verse 8, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as that first part of the temple remains standing. And that's symbolic of the present age. Christ has to come and usher in the new age of the new covenant, the the curtain torn in two, so that access to the most holy place can happen. And what the author is saying is, the, the, the argument continues in verse 11, is that when Christ came, everything changed. When Christ came, everything changed. He, talk about status, he has status. His status is unique, and it's superior, and it's demonstrated by the fact that he doesn't enter into a copy, he goes to the real place. And he goes there once, once for all time. He does not go repeatedly. But he also goes in with the right credentials, the right badge, the right key, the right ticket, whatever you want to call it. Those credentials, that badge, it's his own blood. He goes in offering his own blood. And so there's no status. This is kind of one of the themes of Hebrews. There's no status greater than the status of Jesus Christ himself, whose own blood gains entrance into the presence of God himself. And so this section continues and maybe even climaxes for the author this theme of the superiority of Jesus Christ that we've seen from the beginning of this book. He brings a greater message because he's a greater prophet. He's a greater priest. He's a greater king. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He's a greater sacrifice. The promises that he guarantees are better promises with greater blessing. The good things to come is how the author summarizes them in verse 11 of our passage. Christ's blood gains him entrance into the presence of God himself. And this passage, 11 to 14, is one of the key passages, probably the key passage in Scripture, that talks about Christ's blood and how important that blood is. We've been singing about it, and we're going to sing about it some more. His blood matters. People outside the faith look at this and go, ooh, that's weird. Blood? You guys are creepy. Blood washes things? You wash yourself with blood? What are you talking about, you Christians? That's disgusting. We understand the bigger picture, partly because of the book of Hebrews. I want to look at these verses <clears throat> in, three, in three ways this morning. The verses kind of neatly divide themselves, 11 and 12 and then 13 and 14. 11 and 12 first basically tell us what Christ does. What does Christ do? do. Verses 13 and 14 tell us why what he does is better. (laughs) So what does he do first? Why what he does is better? Second in verses 13 and 14. And then sprinkled throughout these verses are four things 
that I want to point out are the benefits that we get because of what Christ has done and why it is so superior. So again, what he does, why it's better, and what it does for us, which is pretty cool. All right, what did Christ do? It's described very simply in these verses, and yet it's, it's very profound. He appeared as high priest of the good things to come <clears throat> through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He appeared and he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Again, a simple description, but with depths of meaning. We'll just touch on a few things here this morning. He's building on everything, of course, he said so far, especially since chapter 7, and especially the the stuff we talked about a couple weeks ago in verses 1 to 10. Now, the point, remember, of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies was to make atonement for the people of God. Once a day on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the people have sinned. A perfect sacrifice is killed without blemish. Prayers are spoken. Blood is taken into the presence of God, sprinkled on the mercy seat on the ark. And this satisfies God's wrath for sin. It cleans God's people of their defilement because of their sin. And temporarily, at least, restores God's people into a right relationship with him. They are atoned for But again, what we've seen in Hebrews time and time again is how inadequate this practice really was. Animal blood cannot atone for human sin. There's a disconnect there. Legal rituals are weak and useless because they don't make men perfect. Again, looking back at chapter 7, verse 18. Weak and useless. What a thing to say about something God has ordained. And yet God is saying it (laughs) to instruct us into better things. The promise of a new covenant that writes God's law on the hearts of his people is, again, evidence of the weakness and inadequacy of the old covenant. That it's temporary, that it needs to be replaced. That's kind of the argument in chapter 8. And then what we just talked about, that as long as this earthly copy is in place, functioning, has status, has standing, with priests coming and going, with a curtain blocking the entrance into God's presence, the gifts and sacrifices offered there cannot perfect the consciences, consci- consciousnesses, <laughs> consciences of those who worship God. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. So this whole Old Testament, Old Covenant arrangement, this whole sacrificial system is an object lesson to God's people that they should not put their confidence in things that are inadequate not put their confidence in an inadequate system, but rather put their hope in the promises that God gave them, even back then, for something better to come. The seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. The seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to all peoples on earth. The prophet greater than Moses. The high priest and king from Psalm 110, like Melchizedek who would usher in and serve as the high priest of a new and better covenant promised in many places, including what was quoted in chapter 8, Jeremiah 31. They were to put their hope not in these rituals, 
They were to do them. They had to do them, or they got kicked out. But that was not their hope. Righteousness always comes by faith. The just always live by faith. Faith and hope are tied together. Their hope was in the Messiah. Their hope was in the Christ to come. And the author uses that title, Christ, Messiah, in chapter 11, to emphasize that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. He has now come and he has now done what the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament system could not do. He did not go into a copy like they did, a copy made with human hands of this creation. He went into the real holy places that are not part of this creation. He doesn't go in repeatedly year after year, but once for all. And therefore what he did is permanent. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's done. Any idea that that thinks of restoring the temple or restoring temple worship or going and looking for a perfect red heifer is a waste of time. It's going back to something that doesn't work. We have what worked perfectly once for all didn't done, accomplished. He didn't go into God's presence with the blood of goats and calves, but with his very own blood. Human blood to pay for human sin. Human blood to satisfy the wrath of God for human sin. Human blood that restores God's people permanently, once and for all, to a right relationship with God. To put it simply, Christ has done permanently and perfectly and completely what the old priests could only do temporarily, imperfectly, and incompletely. Christ has done it permanently, perfectly, and completely. It's permanent, it's perfect, and it's complete because what he does is better. And so that's what the author turns to in verses 13 and 14. What he did is better than what they did. He uses what the logicians call an a fortiori argument, or how much more. If this is good, how much better is this thing? If A did this, how much did B do it better? Or if A did that, how much is what B did better than what A did? Common argument in the New Testament, especially when comparing the work of Christ (coughs) to what came before. Again, simple statement with profound implications. If the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's Numbers 19 that we read earlier, if these things could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If bulls and goats and heifers could do the outward thing, How much more does the blood of Christ himself, remember, the greater prophet, the greater king, the greater sacrifice, the greater mediator, the greater everything, how much more does his blood actually purify our consciences and do what the Old Testament law could not do? If the Old Testament people of God, defiled by their sin, could be outwardly cleansed, by those Old Testament sacrifices, if that worked for outward sanctification, to make them holy and acceptable, at least ritually before God, again, how much more does the blood of Christ permanently, 
sanctify us, justify us, make us right with God inwardly, completely, our whole selves. The author is here pointing to the whole regimen of Old Testament sacrifices. He's moved beyond that just once a year Yom Kippur sacrifice. He's referring to everything. That's where the heifer thing comes in. Defilement because of death. So what's, what's going on here? Death to life. Not just res- restoration to a right relationship, but a restoration from death to life. What Jesus does is not just remove external stain, but he removes death itself and brings life to those who are saved to those who are his. Now, the Old Testament system was good, but it was only good outwardly. It did do something positive in restoring people to a a ritual, right relationship with God, but it could only do it temporarily. It could only do it impermanently. It was weak in that regard. So again, if that worked outwardly, how much more does Jesus' sacrifice and offer of his own blood, human blood for human sins, do exactly what God promised that he would do? To change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, with God's law written on them, no longer needing to be taught to know God, but knowing God personally and intimately. To know that he is our God and we are his people. To know and experience that God is merciful toward our iniquities and remembers our sins no more. This is what the author was referring to back in chapter 8, verses 10 to 12, when he quoted from the promise from Jeremiah 31 of the new covenant. This is what I will do. I will establish my covenant. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach each other to know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. The Old Testament rituals could not do this. The blood of animals cannot do this. (laughs) The blood of Christ does. That's what the author is saying. What you were waiting for, what you were hoping for, when Christ appeared as a high priest, the good things came. And they came because his sacrifice is better, without blemish and perfect. Therefore, it's effective. It works, and it works finally, once and for all, because finally someone has obeyed God's law perfectly and completely. So like Paul teaches in the book of Romans, now we have a new Adam. The first Adam brought death, but now the new Adam brings life. The first Adam brought sin to all of humanity, but now the new Adam brings righteousness to God's people. And who are his people? Who received the benefit of what Christ does? Well, everyone we know from the gospel message who admits their sin, their need to repent of that sin, their need for someone to save them, and then receive by the gift of faith what God offers, Christ in his work on their behalf, his obedience to be credited to their account, their sin to be nailed to the cross with him, and remembered no more, received by grace and through faith alone. Again, Jesus, the Son of God, accomplished this salvation for his people. He did offer himself and his own blood to do what that Old Testament system couldn't do and then sent the Holy Spirit to apply that salvation to us. There's some question in verse 14, just to deal with a little technical point. 
What is the author referring to when he talks about the eternal spirit? Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish. There's some people who would take that as saying uh, that this is the spirit of Christ, his eternal nature, his eternal being, eternally offering himself before God. Um, There's better reason to believe that this is actually the Holy Spirit through whom Christ offers his blood to the Father. That seems a little weird because we don't normally talk that way, but think about this. When we talk about our salvation, we say that Christ accomplishes salvation for us. The Holy Spirit applies it to us. I think something similar is going on the other way, if I can put it that way. Christ accomplishes salvation. The Holy Spirit applies it or offers it, or he offers it through the Holy Spirit to the Father. Either way, it emphasizes the unity of the Trinity in accomplishing our salvation and making it real for us. All right, so what does it do for us? Four things that I want to point out in these verses. One of them is kind of a general statement. The other three are more specific. I want to look at the specific ones first. Verse 12, when he offers his blood at the end of that verse, Christ secures for us an eternal redemption. We've talked about redemption before. You buy something back. Something is out there, a bottle. What does the manufacturer want to do? He wants to buy it back so he can use it again. Kind of a goofy example, but that's the general idea. God buys us back to make us his again. He buys us out of slavery to sin and death. And when he does it, it's eternal. That word is not unimportant. It is an eternal redemption. It can't be lost. It can't be taken away. It's not temporary. Again, that's part of what makes Christ's work better. It's eternal. We are eternally redeemed. We don't have to go back and get re-redeemed. So it's an eternal redemption. We are bought back and we are Christ's. We are his and that cannot be taken away. Verse 14, we talked about this. Our conscience is purified by Christ in a way that the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, the way that they could not do it. Again, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah fulfilled. God's law written on our hearts. Our consciences purified. Because without Christ and the salvation he offered, the law only does one thing. It condemns us. Our consciences are condemned. We see the law and we go, woe is me. The third day and the seventh day I have to get washed? What if I'm busy out in my fields on the seventh day? You mean I'm kicked out? Yeah, you're kicked out. The law is hard. It cannot be kept. It's beautiful. It's holy. It's glorious. But all it can do is condemn us. Our consciences cannot be purified. We break the law in countless ways, repeatedly, day after day, and hour after hour, and minute by minute. But see, in Christ, our consciences can be clear. They should be clear. I've talked about this before. Guilt is not a Christian thing. Because you are not guilty before God. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. Shame for sin, of course. I'm ashamed of my sin daily. It's that Pauline struggle in Romans 7. I don't do the things I know I should. I do things I know I shouldn't. I'm ashamed. Am I guilty? No. There is therefore now 
no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Your conscience should be clear in Christ. Take that. For freedom Christ has set us free. So we have a clear, pure conscience before God. And now the law changes into something else. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's a picture of God's holiness. Now I see the wisdom of it and the righteousness of it. And I want to do it because it makes sense. And I love it. And I love the God who gave it to me. Now light shines where darkness once reigned. What a glorious change. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can purify our conscience. And he does it for a purpose, as verse 14 concludes. To purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. We're purified. And now that means that we're once considered dead works, are now considered acceptable to the living God. We can offer acceptable service to the living God as, again, Paul calls us to. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service. The law law is unreasonable in a human sense of speaking, in the sense that the author is talking about it here of it being weak and useless. But offering ourselves in service to God after he has purified us and made us his, that's reasonable. It's just reasonable. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Christ did this so that we could serve the living God. And our works are no longer dead. It means we must have works, of course. Our works don't save us. But we know from Scripture you can't have faith without works, and you can't have works without faith. Take away the one and the other is dead. Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. Dead works. We are purified from dead works. Faith isn't optional. Works are not optional. Never forgetting, of course, that God is the one who has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, from dead works to serve the living God, because he is a living God. What about the general benefit? It's talked about there in verse 11. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. (laughs) What what an all-encompassing statement that is. All the benefits of salvation, all the blessings of God, all the promises of God to his people, Christ appeared to make the good things come. And the author says they have come. Not that they're coming, they have come. The present Age is passing away. The new age has intruded, established, and will be consummated at the end of all things. So here he's talking about all the benefits, all the blessings of salvation. Born again by the power of the Spirit. Given the gift of faith, able to hear and receive and accept and put our hope and faith in Jesus for salvation. We have peace with God. We're accepted before him. We are justified. True holiness and obedience is ours as we walk with God in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're sanctified. We're adopted as sons and daughters of of the Most High God. We can count Jesus Christ as our brother. He calls us his friends. (laughs) 
we were his enemies before. And we're protected by God. We cannot lose that salvation. We persist in that salvation or persevere in it. We continue to battle against sin. We continue to fight against us. But still, it's an eternal redemption. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. We have the privilege of looking forward to that consummation of the new age, that time when Christ makes all of his enemies his footstool. The judgment comes and he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And we live eternally with God. We serve and worship him forever. And all that that means, no more sorrow or tears, no more striving, no more struggling, no more the frustration and futility and pain and conflict and just despair at times that life in this world brings. We talked last time about how it's God who put eternity into men's hearts and they chase it in all sorts of different ways. Eternity only comes through Jesus Christ and his blood, repenting and believing in him. And only by doing that does eternity become a reality. There's another thing about badges to reemphasize here or having that VIP ticket that allows you to go backstage or into some privileged area. The ticket gets you in, but it also keeps you in. It gets you in, but it also says, I deserve to be here. No one can come up to me and say, hey, get out, because I flashed my little special badge, the blood of Christ. Think about the high priest. He gets invited in, but only once a year. Does he get to stay? He cannot stay. He does not deserve to be there. He does not deserve or have the privilege to stay there. With Christ's blood, we enter in, we stay, we remain, we deserve to be there. We have the right to be there. Just like the special ticket or special badge gets people into the the place they need to go. Well, the old spirituals talk a lot about tickets and train rides. They were an analogy for salvation. They're also referring to uh, the Underground Railroad. Can I get a ticket on the Underground Railroad and get out of this slavery? But it was also a metaphor for salvation. Can I get a ticket out of this life and into eternity? One of the more famous ones, the repeated refrain is, Lord, if I got my ticket, can I ride? Lord, if I got my ticket, can I ride away to heaven that morning? It's a plaintiff, yearning cry. The ticket, the ticket is Christ's blood. And you only get that ticket by repenting and believing in Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you have that ticket, you get to ride. (laughs) If you have that ticket, you don't get kicked off the train. You stay. And you stay where God is. You get access to the most important place anywhere. God's own presence. And Christ is already there. He's gone before us, pleading our case before the Father. Remember, again, back earlier in the letter, Jesus is our forerunner. He went there before us. He showed the ticket of his own blood. But that ticket gets us in, too. And we wear that blood like a wedding garment. Take a look at Revelation 7, 13, and 14. Or 19, verses 7 to 9. 
God's people are granted a white robe to wear. White because it's been washed in the blood of Christ. We get in (laughs) and we get to stay. We don't get kicked out to the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, the people in Washington, D.C., they can have their badges. Badges? We don't need no stinking badges because we have something better. The blood of Christ. An all-access ticket, pass, badge to eternity and to the presence of God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, our Father, we thank you. We thank you for Christ and what he has done and that it does for us what nothing else could do. Gives us peace with you, makes us your children, gives us the freedom to boldly come before you and lay before you our deepest cares and concerns, things that we wouldn't even speak to our closest friend or relative. Peace with you because our sin is taken away. You remember our sins no more. And we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our hearts do yearn for eternity. We pray that eternity would come and that it would come quickly. And that in the meantime, you would use us and use others to call many to repentance and faith and bring them into the family, the nation, the kingdom of Christ. And that we would rejoice and glory with you and with them for all of eternity. Father, we pray this in the name of the one who made this possible. And so it's in his name that we pray. In the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.